All right, here we go, y'all. Part two. All right, babe, so hopping back in here to this uh, podcast from uh, the Hard Men podcast by Eric Kahn. Why, and, and actually, I, I didn't say the title last time, but I think it's apt. It says, Why Pietism is Destroying America. Strong title there. But uh, I think this is going to be good. We're just going to keep uh, going from where you left off last time. Here we go. That concept at its very root is fundamentally flawed. Yeah. I don't believe that's what God is doing in the world. Uh, God called man, according to Genesis 1, to exercise godly dominion in the earth under his authority and to bring glory to him in all that we do. Every aspect of creation and culture should be bringing glory to God. And that salvation is a restoration of sinful man to Mm. that calling. Now, that's very different from the evangelical paradigm that I just described a couple minutes ago. Yeah, it's hugely different. And I think one of the ways you see that is... I mean, I am continually shocked. Uh, Mark Dever was another one uh, that had said yes. this recently, but just saying, no, heavens, no, I don't want to see culture transformed. Um, yeah. and, and it really is only about what's happening in the church. But even that, it, it seems like you really have to cut things off because when you start looking, okay, if it is about the church, well, what does the church do? It makes disciples. What's discipleship for going out and changing the world? Uh Oh, now we have a problem. So, I, I'm just curious where you think this anti-culture transformation comes from. Is that also just a direct one-to-one to pietism, or is there more going on there? That's a good question. I can't remember what he says. I don't either. But <laughs> Here we go. We'll, listen. we'll see yeah. what he says. I think pietism is one of the main factors. Mm. I think in the United States and Britain, another is the theological paradigm known as dispensationalism, which was also yeah. pietistic. Uh, in its own way, though it was sort of a, had a separate origin and stream. So that's a whole other podcast or two, uh, maybe three. But dispensationalism, which it just means like age or era, I think, um, basically got, I think it got really popular. There, there are different versions of it, but um, it got really popular coming off the John Nelson Darby Plymouth Brethren kind of thing spread across the U.S., especially through the revivals. Um, D.L. Moody, lots of folks became dispensationalists. And that was the whole like different eras of like God deals with his people different ways in different time periods. And it was very much rapture theology, um, premillennialism, okay. but very even more specific than that. Um, and right now we're in the church age and this kind of thing. So typically... It, it, it tends to be a more pessimistic view of the future. Like things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. Finally, Jesus will have a, you know, kind of rapture the church out. And then the, you have the final, you know, the seven years of, of really, really bad tribulation. And then he comes back and um, rules for a thousand years on earth before the final judgment. That's, you know, really quick picture of dispensationalism. But it became really, really popular with the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, I think was a dispensational Bible. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, I think it was one of the main seminaries that really, really um, had that theology and, and kind of spread it. And here I'm not even commenting on its truth or falsity, just kind of just real quickly <clears throat> mentioning the rough 
outline of what it is. Uh, I think we need to cover that more in depth. Um, that's the background I come from. You probably come from most most churches in America. I think most evangelical churches would be in the dispensational stream of one sort or another. And what he's saying, and Vishal Mangalwadi said this as, as well, like a lot of these guys that that do hold to this more of all of Christ for all of life view, they tend to reject dispensationalism okay. for various reasons. Um, but they also, I think, rightfully note that dispensationalism, if you if you walk it out consistently, it does tend toward non-involvement okay. with these issues. Because, you know, as the analogy goes, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? You know, if the Titanic's already hit, basically all you're trying to do is get as many people off as possible, get them in the lifeboats. And that's the situation they see the earth in. Hmm. And so, you know, if okay. it would be a fool that would stand there and, you know, clean the, the silver for the kitchen, right? So you. that's why it, it, it does tend toward non-involvement. Now, having said that, some of the people that are most involved, like even uh, Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series, those, those are an expression, a fictional expression of dispensational theology. I think he and his wife are super involved in politics. So you do get a lot of people, thankfully, that they would say are inconsistent probably with their dispensationalism, but they would say thankfully so. Gotcha. It's, it's very ironic that you have so many Protestants that are in this sort of let's limit everything to the centrality of the church uh, when they also are highly anti-Roman Catholic. But you see, historically, that's been the Roman Catholic view, that the church is the one great massive sacrament, and the goal is basically for the everything to be brought into and sort of sanctified by the church. And the area outside the church, they would call all that is in the church, that's called grace, and everything outside is nature. That's the Thomistic distinction, the nature-grace distinction. Yeah. One book you probably heard about, and I'm sure a number of your listeners have read or at least heard about, is the, the book by the neo-Orthodox writer Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture. Uh, he laid out an uh, excellent taxonomy of different views historically of Christianity and culture. Uh, much of modern evangelicalism would fall into what he calls Christ against culture. Uh, that is, the whole point, Jesus Christ came in order to take people away from culture, not to redeem culture, but to separate them from culture. Uh, then there's the liberal paradigm, which none of us believes, Christ of culture, that is all we do in the church is basically take what is going on in the culture and baptize it in the church, although sadly many evangelicals are doing that. Uh, but his final paradigm is the, is the historic reformed paradigm, Christ the transformer of culture. It doesn't see culture as normative, but it does see culture as a fit object for redemption on the basis of Christ's uh, atoning work. So I think that evangelicals have simply bought into that paradigm for the longest time. And I think when you, your real nub of your question is great, where did it really come from? I think it goes back to something that we said earlier in the conversation, which is they really don't understand the fullness of the gospel. They define the gospel much more narrowly, in my view, than the Bible defines it. That, I think. There are other things, too. But the pietism flows into that. The dispensationalism flows into that. Uh, the ecclesiocentrism flows into that. All of these flow into a lack of understanding of what the gospel really is. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And I What's interesting about that, too, is I, I don't think Sandlin would, would appreciate his view of what he's calling historic um, reformed or historic um, 
I can't remember how he termed it, but this view of reformed Kuyperianism that he and others will claim, you know, goes all the way back to like they would say Paul taught it and, you know, but um, he probably wouldn't like this seven mountains theology. I was thinking about that. In total, yeah. but, but I do think there's a lot of overlap and, th- and, you know, most of the guys, so the, the seven mountain theology is um, kind of growing, having an insurgency typically in the more charismatic realms. Okay. So most of those guys are dispensationalists. But I think, and they, so they would hold to that narrow view of the gospel, but where they're seeing the need to broaden that out is the Great Commission, I think. Okay. And so they're saying, okay, no, we, yeah, the gospel is, you know, Heaven when they die, that has to do with sanctification as well, personal piety. But we also are called as a church to have an impact to salt and light. Seven Mountains is kind of like, how do you do that, right? So they said we, we've, like Lance Wall now will say that, we've, we've focused on the church mountain for the past 150 years Amen. or whatever. And that's what he's called ecclesiocentrality or whatever, however he said it, the centering the church as the kingdom itself and nothing ah, outside of that. Okay. That He said that dispensationalism and pietism have really combined to make us ineffective and and keep us from impacting the culture around us like we should. Mm. Similarly, the Seven Mountains guys, although, like I said, he probably he wouldn't want his view to be put in the same view as that. But I think there's a lot of overlap, okay. um, and and I'm thankful for that because I think the Seven Mountains starts with the same idea, like we should transform culture. And that is where they agree with the reformed Kuyperians. And that's great. Um, theirs is just more of a how-to. Like the Seven Mountains is saying you do that through impacting the, the business, business world, education, entertainment, yeah. education. And I think the the reformed guys will say something similar. They just don't see it kind of in those prophetic terms like that. But if you wanted to transform a culture, those tend to be the spheres that do it. That's why the the Marxists, they understood they wanted to transform culture. Ooh. So they did it through propaganda in the yeah. media, education, in the universities, yeah. education. So oh the Seven Mountains is like a kind of a reverse of what they did from a Christian perspective. Perspective, trying to retake the culture by taking back these mountains and influencing them. And I think that's interesting that you have a bunch of dispensationalists who are getting in the game based on that, based on a re, uh, I guess, a reframing of the understanding okay. of what the mission of the church is to do. It's not just to build your church. And you'll hear Lance say that a lot. He's a big proponent of the Seven Mountains theology. And you'll hear him often saying that, right? Right. He's the first I've heard teach on that. Yeah. And he really broke it down. And, I was like, yep. that's a brilliant plan. Yeah. And so Bill Bright, I think for Campus Crusade, and, okay. and also used to teach something similar. Uh, the Q Commons had the seven yeah. spheres, even okay. though they weren't really in the charismatic realm. But um, I think he was he's right to say that, like, you know, just focusing on your church growth and your church plan, it's it's too myopic. It's ecclesiocentric. And that's, he's saying the Catholics were like that. Okay. Roman Catholics, the, Roman Catholic theology was more like that. So he thought it was ironic that the Protestants were, had bought into that same idea for so long. Mm. But I, I just, I appreciate the fact that whatever side you're coming from on this, that you're getting involved, because I think it is ultimately more biblical, however you um, frame it and however you do it exactly, you know, Sandlin's rooting it back to the gospel, the seven mountain people rooted it back to probably the mission of the church. But either way, we're, we're getting back to that full expression mm-hmm. of um, doing our, like fulfilling the creational mandate and the great commission. I think too, a lot of the level of argument is actually in the church. This kind of ties into pietism too. 
um, a lot of the argument is kind of shallow. So I've had this conversation with people and I say, you know, we, we need to be thinking about transforming the culture. We're in a culture war, whether or not you want to be in one, we're in one. Um, but a lot of times people will say, Hey man, just keep it centered on the gospel. And that's kind of where for most people, the conversation ends. But one of the trends that's interesting in pietism and in feminism is they can both tend to be anti-doctrinal. Um, and I'm curious why you think maybe that is. Yes, well, that's been, if you think about it for a minute. If you want to grow in your confidence in knowing what you believe and why you believe it, if you want to ground your faith in biblical Christianity and step into who God has called you to be, I want to tell you about a great program put on by Impact 360, and it's called Propel. Propel is a one-week transformational leadership and discipleship experience where high school students gather together to be grounded in a biblical worldview as they learn how to follow Jesus, have a godly influence, learn how to disciple their peers, and boldly live out their faith in their daily lives. So they're having two sessions this summer. The first one is June 19th through the 25th, and the second one is June 26th through July 2nd. These programs fill up really quickly, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. So we'll put the link below if you're interested in looking into it and we'll see you this summer. So how did you, have you experienced that at all? How, if so, how did you see that? You know, I, I, I sense more of a, a pushback on um, more uh, getting involved in culture and taking the, the mountains, yeah. but I do periodically get a sprinkle of um, a pushback on like thinking critically or thinking, um, going diving deeper into doctrine and yeah. knowing what you believe and why it's just about worship right now. I feel like just gathering together to sing for, um, hours and hours in worship, but yeah. which is beautiful, but I don't see often let's get together and dig into the scriptures and really, yeah. really exegete and just see what the book of Romans or any of things like that. So yeah. maybe I'm being too judgmental, but I'm sure it's going on, but I don't see a, a definite pushback but I don't, I don't I can't say that I am um that it's a ma been a major thing that you've noticed yeah yeah not, no not. I think how for, about you yeah it has for me because just because of my interaction with the faith I was always bothered by you know certain questions oh yeah of course so I bring my questions you know to the church and it was kind of like you he know had questions <laughs> lots uh, of questions lots of questions <laughs> lots of struggles with the yes. with the intellectual side of the faith and I in, in it was really, really far a few between where I could find someone that had even thought oh, about, you know, gosh. basic stuff. Like, why do I trust, why should I trust the Bible? Mm. Um, how do I know it's authoritative, inerrant? Um, just basic, wow. you know, kind of questions like that. And so it took me a long time to find there were like, historically there are tons, I mean, you know, thousands of Christians who have thought through that stuff at a way deeper level than I ever will. Um, and there, even currently there's pockets of it, but by and large, like, I, you know, growing up in the background I did, there was a high emphasis on, um, spiritually experiencing God, Okay, knowing him was great. Like there was authentic Christianity. It was sincere, but it definitely anti-intellectual. But I was surprised when I started doing a lot of ministry outside of my circle and different denominations, the Baptist world and other worlds. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised to still see a lot of that come through and especially a lack of engagement with the mm -hmm. questions that the culture was having around. And I, th I thought, you know, why, why is that? And, and this, this kind of explains 
that yeah. that why uh, pietism itself lends toward any intellectualism. You know, it's interesting. You know, now that you mention it, I remember attending a church in Nashville, Bethel Word Outreach, and at the time, Pastor Rice Brooks was the first um, pastor to ever teach, sort of apologetically. Yeah. And but he was really involved in culture. He was the brains behind the mm. God's Not Dead movies, and so he definitely was not um, of pietism. But yet he he really encouraged us to really think it through, think through the faith. And he he would give these messages. And I was like, wow, what kind of preaching is that? Because that was new to me at the yeah. time. But then at the same time, he's traveling the world, really engaging yeah. culture. Yeah, he was going to college he, campuses. Uh, oh, yeah. You go to one college campus and like have an open forum, you'll, you'll be encouraged to do your <laughs> studying. Um, For sure. But doctrine, days. I think, you know, is a subset of intellectual pursuit, you know, like biblical doctrine. Okay. It's interesting that there's a move for that too. There's like a real a real hesitancy to get too much into doctrine in evangelical churches. And I remember once um, there was a massive church in Texas. I won't name it in this particular podcast because it's not that important. But they they were doing this thing called Freedom Ministry. Okay. And part of the yeah. Freedom Ministry, they had this tree that like they 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 were putting it in the category where you're thinking like according to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, in other words, if you wanted to walk in the freedom that God had, you needed to stop walking according to this tree that we were, you know, had the fallen state. One of the branches on that tree just said, just plainly said doctrine. (laughs) And I know they didn't mean that to the fullest because... I know the people involved, and but it, but yeah. but that the fact that that could make it through the printing press and make it to all these churches that they were spreading it to, I was like, yikes! Because that it and it did lend toward that they would have these exercises where they would you know kind of have you bracket everything you believed about God and just let the Holy Spirit tell you who God is. And wow, I was like, man, that's a you know that's a dangerous recipe right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I noticed like how wow. that just kind of was easily accepted. I think by the the churches I knew of that were adopting that freedom ministry thing, and there was some good stuff in it for sure. And I understand what what they meant because. I think what they were trying to get away from was the kind of scholasticism that that drives you away from God and and that makes you just like this kind of anxious, angry person. But the way it was stated was still it was it was very much in the wrong direction. But Mm -hmm. anyways, we'll hear what Sandler has to say about it. Um, Of course, the gospel presupposes doctrine. But for them, uh, if the important thing is this vertical relationship with God and sort of a warm heart devotion, the emphasis on doctrine inherently creates a call to follow, to believe or disbelieve, and therefore a division. Yeah. So because they often don't want division, they don't want doctrine. Uh, I've often heard. That's an interesting point too, right? Because when you do get into, yeah, you know, you, you've had classes too, or uh, when I was doing Biola, the science of religion, you know, you have your debate boards and, you know, the, the more precise you try to get with doctrine, it does, you know, it, it kind of splits people into camps and yeah. um, you can understand that, ten, that pietistic tendency to reject that because you don't, you, you don't want to have those divisions in your church, right? Right. And, but the heart, the... The consequence, some of the consequences of not having those kinds of understandings is that culture right now is trying to answer every question and bombarding yep. young people and adults with answers to those deep questions. Who yep. is man? 
who is God? What kind of world do we live in? And it's like, either we speak, either we find the answers biblically or we'll just adopt the world's answers. And so that's the hard thing. And that's what happens in these, in a lot of these churches. And we're just saying we can understand that impulse. It's the wrong impulse. Yeah. But we can understand it. Yeah. And the Peace. reason it's the wrong impulse is exactly what you said, yeah. because there people are we are made to have a worldview and you're going to fill in that worldview, that belief system with what and most of us are indoctrinated in public schools that are set against the knowledge of God. Right. So if you're not correcting that through biblical doctrine, sound doctrine, then that's going to be their disposition. And you're just going to paste like some kind of fluffy, ambiguous Jesus words sure. over it, trying to get people to have experiences and warm fellowship with yeah. God. Yeah. Even today we heard a, a great teaching in church about marriage and yeah. finally just a good biblical foundational understanding of marriage. Yeah. And so look out in our culture. They're trying to redefine it. They're trying to just anything goes yeah. under the context of marriage. And it's yep. just... Not, not true. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's, it's crazy that it's a basic message on marriage is like... It's revolutionary it right is. now. <laughs> but it is, man. It stands it's out. Amazing, and, yeah. um, but, you know, so you, you do have to find that place of, of wisdom and knowing. That's why he says not, not being too quick to disagree strongly okay, on those yeah. secondary issues in, in a way that cuts people and, and sure. demeans them. Like you have to know how to fight in a good yeah, biblical way about doctrine, and and but you have to go through that. You can't avoid oh, those boy. discussions. You just have to be. And then also, like unity is held in our culture, is is the like the only thing. Love and unity, right? It's these are held up as like unity, the highest diversity, virtue. Yeah. To the to the neglect of anything else, you can't you can't build unity without truth. Come on. Um, so there are times when you you actually need to divide over some issues. And then within that, you have to create, you have to learn how to create unity in the proper way while still upholding truth and maybe even learning how to disagree on certain issues and other things we have to come into uniformity. So people say doctrine divides, but Christ unites. Well, that's a false <laughs> antithesis. It is right. true that Christ uh, unites, but even to, be, to talk about Christ is to invoke doctrine. Which Christ? Right. Uh, is Christ God and man? In what sense is he God and man? What is his calling? Did he die? Did he rise? So all of this is the case. So a, a de-emphasis on doctrine, and this, by the way, was also a problem with Spainer's um, pietism and historically with pietism. This is why, historically, pietism led to Protestant liberalism. Uh, probably the first Protestant liberal most people acknowledge now that's that. Wow, that was a new thought for me when I heard that. Okay, but I you can see why, because if you, and I think that's why honestly, a lot of the evangelical churches were easily taken in by CRT, mm. um, and then once you're taken in by CRT, that's the road to progressive Christianity, liberalism, mm. as he called it. Like progressive Christianity in modern form is like to me a less intellectually rigorous form of old like modern liberalism that okay. was much more thoughtful but they're on the same place in a lot of areas but why is it the pietism tends to lead toward that because when you get rid of that emphasis on doctrine, doctrine. it opens you up to anything right yeah. and then you're if you're a feelings like if it's based on emotional feeling all of a sudden they can come in and trick you by taking up for the oppressed yeah and you're just taken right in by it because you don't have the the precision of thought to discern and see through that yeah and CRT came with such a wave of 
virtue and, and um, compassion, false compassion, or just a right. way to really feel like you're doing something. Yep. You're fighting a cause. You are, you are um, on the right side of things. It came like a flood and, yeah. and we stood by. And, and it appealed it, to all those soft virtues, unity, yes. love, tolerance. So again, if you're not, if you're not like really, really chopping that stuff up, it's of course, it's going to pull you right in. And I think that's the connection. Mm -hmm. First Protestant level, liberal Friedrich Schleimacher uh, came from a very pietistic family. Yeah. And he eventually said that the Christian theology and the Christian faith is not about what the Bible teaches, but about what the church feels about what the Bible teaches. Uh, well, if you don't believe that the Bible is propositional revelation and gives to us doctrine and everything then is reduced to this um, sort of uh, notion of dependence, he said, dependence on God that's not bounded by certain truths, well, then eventually you can believe anything about Jesus Christ. You don't have to believe he's the son of God. You don't have to believe in salvation by grace. So, And it's a lot easier to believe along the lines of the culture around you than it is to buck against. It's a more peaceful day. Oh (laughs) man. You know? Yeah. It's lonely. It it can be scary at times, but it's, it's um, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make for, you don't always gain friends and influence (laughs) people. Listen, listen. Pietism is the grandfather of Protestant liberalism. It didn't intend to be. Interesting. when you get rid of doctrine, you eventually will buy into um, what's called what we understand to be liberalism. Yeah. And, and there's an interesting connection, I think, too, with the church today. Maybe this is all the pietism is maybe one of the reasons why the church has been so susceptible to critical race theory, wow. uh, to Marxism. I wonder if you think that's true or, or why. I, I mean, I've asked that question because, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, I was reading Mark Dever and CJ Mahaney and John Piper, and I didn't have any inclination at the time that that was going to go woke and socialist. But it has gone down that hill pretty fast. Uh, again, I just want to ask you if, if you see that, and and do you think that the pietism opened the door for a lot of those things? Yeah, you've actually put your finger on it. So here's what's happened: they have uh, this sort of escapism uh, has suffered revenge, and here's what happened. Because, because at the time they wanted to limit the faith to these issues of warm personal piety and uh, a church that follows Christ and yeah. personal sanctification and not address and not recognize the importance of a comprehensive worldview. Because of that, thinking that they could protect themselves just by that devotion, we have found them to be sadly wrong. This is a good example. My friend uh, Joe Boot points out so many pastors, <laughs> it's interesting, they'll say, we're going to keep politics out of this church. We're not going to politicize it. We're not going to preach about politics. We're going to protect this church from any political ideas. Well, they never do that. Because if the church doesn't get its political ideas from the word of God on the pulpit, they'll, the church will get it from the wider culture. That's yeah. Basically, right. <laughs> just said. You right. know, earlier he said, um, it, the focus became not what the Bible said, but what the church felt mm, about, about what the Bible, the Bible said. Yeah. And I just wonder how, I mean, that's such a, um, a trick of the enemy to get feelings first yeah. on the throne that to, to, to be the filter for everything. How do we feel about this? Yeah. As opposed to what has God spoken about this? I think that's, 
therein lies the battle. <laughs> what what will you do once you hear the truth? Will you yeah, receive man. it or will you focus on your feelings about it? And yeah. At the end of the day, you'll have to decide, but not deciding uh, towards a, Bible is you right. It's a decision, Against and you're Bible. not saved yeah, from that yeah. that kind of decision. And yeah, so, man. ooh, that enemy, he's a trickster. Yep, that's that's good. Man. Yeah, you never protect the church from politics by refusing to address polit refusing to address politics in the church. That's I think huge. analogously, that's what's happened with these many of these other ministries. They were blindsided by all this stuff because they didn't stress the necessity of a Christian, a robust Christian worldview that would have protected them from it. They only had very small walls. They didn't have the high walls, the godly walls of a worldview. They had very short walls of sort of personal piety. That's a good analogy, right? Little short walls Ooh. around your city. People just, just hop over it. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Instead of them that's tall walls with the jokers up there. Yeah, you know, the that's, walls of yeah, man. the doctrine. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. that's really but that powerful. won't protect you against alien worldview. Yeah, that that's so huge. I, I think the other thing, Andrew, is the um, one of the things inherent in all of this is a sort of antinomian bent. So we talked a little bit about that word. So no mean, yeah, nomos Ant law. law. So okay. when you see, anti um, yeah, antinomian is, you know, basically the modern version of Christianity. Hopefully they'll explain. I can't remember everything that they say, but um, where we just, we have a low regard for any laws, any laws of God or anything like that. And so we tend to be you know, just free to do whatever, you know. Um, and also, so the word, you know, we talked about theonomy. Theos, okay. God, and Nomi, law, God's law, and that how that particular view. But uh, yeah. So early in my days, like this is mid 2000s, I remember actually writing John Piper and his son Abraham, I think, responded to me. But okay, so at the point, I'm like a fundy Baptist. <laughs> I met going to Southern Seminary. And my question is I'm looking at the Old Testament and I say, well, how do you understand the law of God to the new Testament? And that's just, that's not from reading anything. This is like pre rush Dooney. It's pre any of that. Rush Dooney is one of the guys too. That's probably influential in a lot of the reformed Kuyperians, okay. RJ rush Dooney. He, he wrote a lot like kind of Francis Schaeffer type um, stuff was involved in trying to bring about like this movement. Um, oh yeah. And I thought autonomy as well. Self law. Okay. Yeah. You know, so, and, and like Douglas Wilson and others will say when it ultimately it's either going to be theonomy or autonomy. Like it, it gotcha. when okay. you get down to like brass tacks, like it's either going to be a God's law or my own law or, you know, the law we constructed together, but it's, those are the only real, real two categories. But I sense that there was a whole generation of people saying, well, we have all this content in the old Testament and nobody knows what to do with it. And so the answer was, well, just be gospel centered and, and believe the gospel. And that really, as you pointed out, was a recipe for disaster. So I guess my question with all of that is you would see, right? You would see antinomianism written in all of this. Yeah. I think pietism leads to that. There's a strong division between the, between the testaments and because the law of God makes demands uh, on our lives, and because they often misread the New Testament when Paul criticizes the law, he always criticizes it in the context of a means of justification. Right. He never criticizes the law as a description of God's holy character and as a standard for our sanctification. 
no self-respecting Christian in the New Testament era would ever have thought otherwise. They didn't have a New Testament. People don't think about that. I've heard people say, well, we want to establish a New Testament church, or we want to get back to New Testament Christianity. I say, have you ever thought of the fact that people actually living in the era covered by the New Testament never could have thought that way? Right. Uh, This is why Paul again and again has to justify his statements about Christ and about the law and about the gospel by quoting the Old Testament. That's true of the others also. The other... So there's, you know, what he's talking about there is true too. And you see this in evangelicalism, like just wanting to kind of get rid of or ignore the Old Testament, you know? Yeah. I've seen, I've heard of pastors who are no longer going to teach from. Yeah, man. And, you know, and Andy Stanley famously said that a couple of years ago about unhooking the Old Testament. And he Mm -hmm. meant that in a specific context, but even when he explained like what he meant by that, I, I think it still was was very telling and it did go along these lines that basically, you know, we're at best, we're a little bit embarrassed by it and we want to move it to the side. We're trying to reach people. And then I think his idea was, well, you could bring it back in later as they mature, but I just, I don't have a bunch, I don't have a a high level of confidence that, uh, that North point, I think it's North point is actually doing that. And then I think the fruit of that, how he's responded to all these things is in line with what these guys are saying about not having that proper view of the old Testament. Thing that's really ironic about this, Eric, is this is not a new idea. The Puritans themselves had a very high view of the law. And a lot of the people that you mentioned, I mean, uh, they're not unintelligent. They know what the Puritans said. But if you ask them privately, and occasionally they'll let this slip, they disagree with the Puritans on that. Oh, yeah. The problem with the Puritans is they had a very high view of the law. And we know that's not correct. Well, no, they don't know that that's not correct. Uh, the Puritans were right because they had a view of full view of biblical authority. Antinomianism, of course, is anti-law, and modern evangelicalism is shot through with that. Yeah. Uh, For another reason, and I think at a more basic level, we have to acknowledge, is part of this is that uh, the law of God will put a crimp on their personal autonomy. It's easy for them to say, well, the Holy Spirit led me, uh, or I felt like this today. In my quiet time today, Jesus told me. Yeah. And if you say, well, look what the law of God says. Well, I'm not governed by that. I'm governed by what Jesus told me today in my quiet time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's just uh, an excuse for an exercise of personal autonomy, which is the base form of worldliness. That's what our culture is saying. And so they just put like a nice little spiritual or Christian veneer on it. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because I think you mentioned how some of these guys, you know, Piper is a good example. Um, I was reading Piper, listening to Piper sermons. And in many ways, he was kind of like a gateway drug because he was talking about John Owen. He was talking about Jonathan Edwards. So I went back and read these guys. And it's funny because you would read them, you'd read Calvin, and you'd go, wait a minute, these guys are, you know, a lot of them are Presbyterians, they're Duncan babies. And and some of the newer guys were just kind of picking and choosing the parts that they they wanted to take. But I think for myself, and I know a lot of other people as well, if you start reading those original sources, you start getting opened up to things like, you know, I quickly then after that got involved with reading like Greg Bonson, again, mm-hmm. Rush Dooney Institutes of Law, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And you're going, wait a minute, these guys have thought through this and this is really amazing. So I wonder if you see, and this is kind of what I've thought is interesting, but I wonder if you see it, a lot of young people who I didn't really expect. So I'm a millennial but there are people who follow this podcast, uh, Baptists included, who are coming to me and saying, I, I just read Rush Dooney, and I think I'm post-mill. 
and I might even become a Presbyterian. What's happening? Mm -hmm. Um, Curious if you've seen that just kind of an awakening of some sort with, with younger people on these issues. Yeah. Uh, Let me, there are a number of reasons for that, of course, and not one, but uh, I'll tell you one of those. And that is, I think a lot of those like you, Eric, uh, they see the rise of critical race theory, the rise of cultural Marxism. Yeah. These uh, onerous statist COVID lockdown orders. And I think they look at this pietism of the Gospel Coalition, John Piper, and they understand while they may have personal affection for these individuals, those ministries and people don't offer the resources. They don't offer the theological and conceptual resources for addressing these issues. But I think that became apparent over that year for me, just because same thing, like I had affection for a lot of these guys had read their stuff and appreciated it. And still, not to throw it away, like there's still great stuff and, you know, brothers in Christ, but um, that is, it did theologically didn't give the resources for how to deal with what's going on and yeah. how to actually prepare and run it in the other direction. So I think it just alerted people, so a mm-hmm. lot of young people too, like, hey, you know, if this theology can't address this part of life, maybe it's not the whole story. Oh, yeah. It's and then when you thing. begin to look back at the Bible and Christian history, you're like, oh, yeah, there are resources for this. Look around at some of these other guys and ministries and that historic reformed and Puritan vision, and they can say, ah, this is where I can get some resources for addressing these evils of today. I think that's one thing that's driving this movement of a lot of millennials huge. toward a more robust, robust worldviewish faith. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. I, I know for me, when I was in college, I was a philosophy major. And, you know, we're reading Hume and all this, you know, pagan philosophy and some interesting stuff. And I would go to church and I would say, who here knows how to refute David Hume? And people, you know, or Immanuel Kant were reading um, his book on reason. And, and what do you mm-hmm. do with this as a Christian? And people were like, well... I mean, you pray the sinner's prayer and then you accept Jesus in your heart. And that's all I know. So, and and that really wasn't enough. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you find guys who could actually respond to this, who actually had ammunition and they had guns that were bigger than the pagans, it was kind of like, yeah, that's, that is actually a big turn on. Uh, Yeah. It's interesting that there's a, there's a parallel between getting involved in the culture and politics and getting involved in the intellectual battles. Cause the, you know, the, 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 we, we say this all the time that the primary way that Satan works is through ideas and images. And so, you know, one of the ways we do spiritual warfare is taking all those thoughts captive and Come we have on. to, we don't do that by shouting at them. We do that by, you know, understanding where they fall short and pointing out the errors in that way of thinking. And so, um, you know, oftentimes, like in the pietistic movement, what will accompany sort of a political pacifism will be an intellectual pacifism, where they just don't want to. And so you, you'll you be, if you try to get answers to that kind of thing in those churches, by and large, it'll be hard to find. Now, Tim Keller might be an exception to that, because he's actually, I, I don't think he fits the pietist category so much. I think he's a more of a Kuyperian thinker, but on the wrong end. <laughs> so his, his problem, I think, is with his definition of justice. And, okay. um, but he, he wants to apply 
a biblical worldview. I think he just gets some keys wrong there. But but on the Pietist side, that does tend to be the the intellectual passivism does tend to be the the rule. And it and it's a good resource. Well, yeah, I, I think one thing you're implying there, this is another problem that often parallels pietism, and that is anti-intellectualism. Yes. Uh, it's often uh, modern Christians don't feel like it's necessary to address Kantian transcendentalism or Hume skepticism or uh, Nietzsche's postmodernism or so on, not recognizing that if, if Christians don't properly address and refute them, that these ideas will just sort of float around and people will accept them because nobody's refuting them. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we don't refute them doesn't mean that they're not dangerous. Yeah, that's correct. And that's why we need people that do have those resources. But I would, and this is a bottom line issue, the people. Yeah, need people that have those resources. So we, you know, we did our young adult ministry back in the Dizay. Uh, one, one of the things I, I took as my starting point for like the first two years really was uh, J.P. Moreland's book, The Kingdom Triangle. And, you know, he talked about this uh, historian, Michael Green, who was really did the probably the largest study on how was the early church able to flourish in a culture and a political system set against it. And he narrowed it down to three things. And, and it was um, basically the, the recovery of the Christian mind, uh, the renovation of the heart and the, and the restoration of the spirit's power. And what he meant by that was in, in, with the mind, they could um, outthink their opponents. They did great. They understood theology. They, they did apologetics. They could outthink them and engage with them on that level. See that kind of wisdom in Stephen, mm-hmm. you know, before he's stoned. Um, but you have that in early apologists, Justin Martyr, others. Um, but two, you know, the, the heart and the love in the community that, that spilled out beyond it, um, the real biblical love too, not, not the kind of the modern dishy version. And then three, the, the, the power of the spirit working through them. Um, through, in that case, uh, signs, miracles, and different That's things good. like that. That's but, good stuff. Um, you know, I think, yeah, being engaged, we, we were trying to teach that from a biblical perspective in each area and understand, like, not everybody has to be a scholar on Hume or Kant, sure. you know. Yeah. But they need to know where the resources are for that within the church. We all have our stations. It's kind of like an army, right? Mm-hmm. Or army, navy, like all these branches of the Christian world where you can, um, you you do your part, you you guard your post, um, yeah. but you can appeal to others and get help from others. Yeah. Good. People that have the resources are people that recognize that the word of God must speak in the totality of life and the totality of all of our experience. And that's not pietism. Therefore, you won't get the resources among pietists to address what's going on in our world today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely huge. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask, and this is a little bit more about critical race theory, um, well, I'm, I'm going to pop off here because, you know, sure. we'll, we'll cover that. We have covered that and cover that more mm-hmm. in depth with other episodes. But any any last thoughts on just kind of what we're learning about pietism and these streams? Yeah, just recapping that in and of itself, it's not awful or evil. It's just what it leaves out, just making the, the gospel thin and not mm. um, making it the robust narrative of the Bible. And yeah. so... Just being aware of that, that God saves us and brings us two spheres of influence to have impact, to be yeah. salt, to, uh, to, to, to make waves. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't give us his spirit just for personal 
yeah, yeah. Um, private reason. Yes, for that, but not solely. Yeah. We serve a big God who is with us, who wants yeah. to renew our minds, who wants to um, empower us and to, to, to use us in mighty ways yeah. in culture. So, yeah, man. That's, that's my uh, encouragement that's your, that's your to you out there. You know, and even I remember having a pastor that said, even if you want to, if you want to reach the world, be good at what you do, wherever you are, do it with excellence, do it with the, the skill set with excellence, like unto the Lord yeah. and even starting there and then just really studying the scriptures, getting a really good understanding of the Bible. Yeah. Um, is huge in this day and age. It's like, right. <laughs> it's against the flow and it's, um, you stand out in the, and, but you never know who is, um, God is prepared for you to reach and to really influence and save from this depraved culture that we live in. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay encouraged. I'm going to keep on just praying for that early, uh, apostle kind of power <laughs> God yeah. would infuse us and continue to, to, to use us in, yeah. in ways that that's beyond us. Yeah, I mean, that's good. Well, hopefully this has been a good primer on pietism. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts, email us, comment on something where, like I said, we're still in this journey of learning what yeah. it is and how it has impacted our present stuff. parts of it that, you know, Hey, these parts are biblical and good and other parts that we need to bring some correctives on. And hopefully we laid out a good start for you there. So, uh, yeah, hit us up and we'll talk to you or see you soon. Blessings. Well,